Welcome to the Final Girls podcast. This is Anna, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, every season we explore the intersections of horror film and feminism, looking at a particular trope in depth. And in this season, we're talking about the most elegant and the horniest of movie monsters, the vampire. In each episode, I'm joined by a special guest to dive deep into a vampire movie or two. We discuss the films in detail, try to contextualize them, and think about what works and what doesn't quite work. In today's episode, we're exploring two 1980s vampire classics, two debut features of a very different ilk. Firstly, we're going deep on Fright Night, director Tom Holland's first film, where a teenager is convinced that his next-door neighbor is actually a vampire, but nobody believes him. So he enlists a has-been horror actor to help him solve this mystery. And of course, he is actually a vampire, because otherwise it would not be featured in the season. Be warned, there is a lot of talk about Jerry Dandridge's outfits in this part of the episode. And in the second half, we're covering Catherine Bigelow's first feature, Near Dark. A gritty meld of Western, vampire, and biker movies, which follows the young cowboy Caleb after he gets turned by a beautiful vampire and joins her gang of nomadic and vicious vampires. I'm joined in this episode by the fantastic Rosie Fletcher, Den of Geeks UK editor, and we discuss both films in depth. This whole vampire season is made possible with the support of our friends at Arrow Video, who bring the very best of cult, horror, and genre films to deluxe definitive home entertainment editions. Their collection now spans more than 500 titles, and throughout the season, we're recommending a film that we love from their collection. This week, our pick is another gem of 80s horror, The People Under the Stairs the Wes Craven-directed film that explores the savagery which lurks just underneath the surface of a conventional family. It's brutal. Definitely check it out. With that said, if you're new to the podcast, please know that we discuss the films pretty much in spoilerific detail from the beginning, so if you're averse to any discussion of a film before you watch it, consider this your spoiler warning. If you don't really mind, and these films are from the 80s, please enjoy our discussion about Fright Night and Near Dark. Rosie, welcome back on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you very much for having me back. It's a pleasure and we're going to be fully immersing ourselves into the 80s, the vampiric side of the 80s. So I'm I'm excited to chat about these two wildly different films that came out within just a couple of years of mm. each other. But before we dig into the films that we're going to be chatting about today, what is your relationship with vampire films? It is a is it a subgenre of horror that you're particularly drawn to? Um, I wouldn't say I'm particularly drawn to it, but I do think that, like I, I guess, like perhaps zombie films and um, some other big sh- subgenres, one of the nice things about vampires is that you can actually um, it can be metaphorical for lots of different things. So. You know, to some vampire films, I'm less interested in, but mm-hmm. I think I think you can't rule it out as a subgenre just because of um, just because of the versatility of it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, and I mean, I do sort of err on the side of supernatural in my tastes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I do do enjoy a, a good vampire romp. Do you do you have any particular favourites from the vampire canon? I like making everything into a canon. <laughs> from literally everything. Um, <laughs> well, I have to say, so Bram Stoker's Dracula was the very first uh, eighteen certificate movie that I ever went to the cinema to see. And I was 14 uh-huh. and I was really, I was with my best friend, Ruth, and we were both really nervous. And so, and so we were doing this thing, you know, like when you're in the queue and you just, you're pretending to be so incredibly nonchalant. Yeah. That, so I'm saying, yeah. And that, and also, and then like he said this and yeah, okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> t- two for Dracula, please. Yeah. So, sorry, what were you saying? Yeah, and like, cause we were both completely uh-huh. breaking it. Um, <laughs> And we had a, and we had a backup. If they said you're clearly not old enough, then we were going to go and see something else rubbish. I can't remember what it was now. But we got in and we were so excited. And so there's a part of me that will always love that film. I know it's not a perfect film, but being there was like so special. And that movie is so kind of sumptuous and romantic. Mm. And uh, I don't know that that was that one will always be in my heart. I have to say, I love it. And also, honestly, throughout the making of this season so far. Mm. I've been genuinely impressed by just how much love that film gets. And I always thought that it was not as beloved as it turns out it is, because I think everybody kind of had that illicit experience with it and it confused the whole generation into thinking that Gary Oldman was a sex symbol. It, re- it really did. And like, it's, it's a funny one because it's, qu- it's an easy movie to take the piss out of. It really is, mm. you know, with obviously Keanu Reeves doing his terrible Jonathan Harker and all this kind of stuff. But... It was really sexy. I yeah. don't know if that's. I mean, is that because I was fourteen? I don't know. But for oh no, it's reason... still it still holds on. Like we've did a, a whole three way episode about the film, and honestly, I would watch it any day of the week. I love that movie. I think <laughs> yeah. it's really interesting. Yeah, I do too, and it's really beautiful. And it's yeah. got uh, there's just a lot about it that's kind <laughs> of I don't know. It really very much appealed to that age me, and I think quite mm. honestly, probably appealed to this age me as well. You know, <laughs> so. Let's dig into not a Dracula movie, but to mm. not a 90s vampire movie. But first, we're going to discuss Fright Night from 1985, and then we're going to move on into Near Dark. So let's start our in depth chat about Fright Night from 1985. What would you do if you accidentally discovered the house next door was occupied by something not human? Something horrifying. Something unspeakably evil. No one believes you. Mom, I didn't have a nightmare. Not your mom. They did kill a girl over there. Not your girlfriend. Charlie, is this some sort of a trick to get me back? Not even the police. Look, I know it's crazy. I know that, but look, Lieutenant! It knows that you know. You'll do anything to protect yourself. But it will do anything to protect its secret. This could be the night of your life. So what is your relationship with 
with this film. Did you see it um, when you were when you were a teenager, or have you revisited it since? No, I wouldn't have been a teenager. I think I came to this one quite late. To be honest, I can't exactly remember the first time I saw it. Um, I think it probably would have been well. If I was a teenager, it would have been a late a late teenage viewing almost certainly like a VHS one. Mm. Um, and I haven't really revisited. I'd seen the the remake, um, but I, so strangely, I was so I rewatched it a couple of days ago and it was really quite different to what I remembered it. So what stuck in my head about Fright Night wasn't really quite the same thing. Like, mm-hmm. so I think, I think we're gonna have to accept Anna that, um, I think we're gonna have to talk about sex quite a lot in this, episode i'm clutching my pearls (laughs) i think it's inevitable because (laughs) that was one of the things that really stood out about this film watching it as a grown-up about Uh how much it's about that oh yeah so let's before we get into that i'm really glad you mentioned Mm. it because one of my biggest notes in all caps about this film is uh that scene is extremely hot but before we get Mm -hmm. to that scene and I think we both know which one I'm talking about. How do you think this film is perceived versus kind of how we have now experienced it as adults and with the whole baggage of vampire and horror movies behind us? Yeah, so for some reason, I in my head, this was more of a comedy than actually it was. So I was thinking, oh yeah, Fright Night, I was like, it's like, yeah, it's that fairly, mm-hmm. fairly lovable comedy. And rewatching it, I was like, oh, hmm. I mean, it's got comedy elements, absolutely. And um, you know, Roddy McDowell as the the character of Peter Vincent mm-hmm. is is obviously a lot of a lot of comedy in it. Um, but it isn't as I, I don't know why, but I think a tiny part of me thought it was slightly sillier than it actually is. And it's mm. a, I found it slightly more horrific than I suspected I had expected it to be. Um, and also, and I think this had occurred to me at the time. It's but it's basically um, it's basically rear window with vampires, isn't it? Essentially, yes. Yes, I thought so too. And I definitely don't remember thinking that when I first watched it as a, I think I was probably a teenager. Mm. Uh, And you're absolutely right. And I wonder, what do you think are the elements that kind of make it more horrific that we might have remembered at first? Mm, I think it is. So for me, it was the fact that, that Charlie... Brewster so the lead sort of teenager mm-hmm. is in actual peril he's in actual peril he's going to die mm-hmm. and so he sort of has to so I hadn't really so with Rear Window mm-hmm. the thing with Rear Window is that it spends a lot of time saying oh but are, is the guy a killer or is he not or mm-hmm. you know whereas um uh Fright Night really cuts to the chase really quickly like he is definitely and he's been murdering sex workers which again I hadn't remembered yes. at all yeah. which is like watching it again in like in you know the 2021 mm. headset it's like that's really dark like mm. this guy is a proper died in the world serial killer and mm. like and you know we see him kill someone really early and it's not so though it's not a gory film particularly it's um yeah it, it was a bit like actually there's 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 some true peril here there's some actual kind of something really bad could happen to charlie do you know what i mean mm. yeah and it's a thing that you mentioned that's very astute is the fact that we know pretty much from the very beginning that Charlie's fantastical suspicions are correct. He is actually a vampire. Mm. And also he's one that kind of hides in plain sight. He hides in suburbia and he goes after, he murders sex workers, like you say, because as we all know, those are the people that he knows will be cared less for Mm. by, by the police force and that he can get away with more easily. 
So yeah. it's like it's a very studied approach to surviving as a vampire in suburban America. Yes, it really is. And so it really has these kind of, um, I mean, I'm, yeah, as you know, Anna, I'm a big fan of um, true crime. Mm-hmm. And so it had these resonances and this terrible situation of this boy. And like you said, he's right. The guy is a vampire and he's all of his avenues for help. Mm-hmm are being rejected, he's not believed. But not only is he not believed by the policeman, and certainly not believed by his mother, mm. he's not even believed by his girlfriend and his, and his friend. Mm. They don't even believe him. So they they try and, and actually they they um, almost hamper his his progress and like almost put him in a situation where he, he dies. And so it's this terrible situation of this, yeah, this kind of kid confronting mm. the very charming adult and adult male Mm. and everybody believes the guy so i did think oh that was that was darker than i remember so what did you make of charlie brewster as our lead so another thing that i hadn't remembered is um right the very beginning of the movie starts with him trying to get off with his girlfriend and her saying can you stop please yeah and he gets really cross about it and it's like charlie and then she's apologizing to him about it Right. It's like, dearie me. So I think he's a really interesting character. So this is my, um, this is the sort of second reading that I took from it, that as a, as a grown up, is that it's kind of about this guy, Charlie, who is on the cusp of sort of sexuality. He's, so mm-hmm. the TV show that he loves, uh, Fright Nights, starring Peter Vincent, mm-hmm. it's almost like a thing that he loved as a child, but he wants to sort of put away childish things mm-hmm. and be an adult and get into the world of sex mm-hmm. but he's not really kind of grown up enough and so he's a bit of a he's a bit of a pest but then yeah. he finds himself in this terrible situation confronted by someone who is very much an adult and extremely mm. sexual mm-hmm. and it's a, it's a bit too much for him and then and then you have that juxtaposed with the character of evil ed who is mm-hmm. not that who is who is young and hasn't reached that point so you see him like teasing his girlfriend Amy, like, oh, she's got the hots for him. Like, you'd be like, ha, 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 did you kiss? And, like, you know, when you're a child, you find that funny. But when you're a, a teenager or an adult, it's like, no, this is kind of what I want. So it's him wanting to sort of play with the dark side, but finding he's out of his depth, basically. Oh, that's so well put, I think, because he is he's kind of in that annoying in-between mm. where he wants something, he clearly wants sex and to move into adulthood, like you mentioned, but he also is not entirely ready to leave behind his bratty, um, childish ways. And I think Evil Ed is kind of a Evil Ed and Peter Vincent are both almost symbols of that childhood, whether as the allure of Jerry and um and you know, his girlfriend Amy is also I think not exactly ready to yeah. to take it to the next level. But then again, it's because neither of them actually know what they're doing. So it's just very clumsy and awkward and very teenagey. Yeah, absolutely. And and Amy perpetually gets annoyed with him because, you know, he, he's trying to sort of get off with her. And then he's sort of not because he's something else has caught his eye. And she and so he's constantly like seeing something outside or you know getting distracted mm. by something else because you're absolutely right he doesn't really know what he wants and he's not really grown up enough to deal with it. and i completely agree that um ed and uh peter vincent are absolutely symbols of that which is something that i um i really identify with mm. that you know like when you're a kid and you love horror yeah and you sort of want to collect things and you know it, everything's just fascinating and cool and wonderful but it is a little bit um it is a little bit sort of childish 
I suppose, or like, you know, the things that you love aren't necessarily the same things that you would love when you were, you know, like, I don't know, my, my example would be I absolutely uh-huh. loved Poltergeist when I was a teenager, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't have been able to cope with hereditary. Mm. Like, you know, so you sort of love things, but in a very safe way. And I think that's sort of the cusp that Charlie's on. Yeah, and I'm definitely going to pick up on the on the horror fandom aspect of it, because it's such a big part of the film, I think. But I wanted to get into talking about Jerry, Jerry Dandridge, mm. the vampire. Mm. And yeah, and that that noise is exactly the noise that Jerry Dandridge deserves, because uh, I also did not remember just how sexy, sexy this film sexy. gets. Oh my god, sexy, sexy Jerry Dandridge, yeah. Uh, f- first of all, a vampire called Jerry Dandridge is already kind of a preposterous thing. <laughs> It is, it is hilariously preposterous because also it's such a terror. Like, if you're like, oh, they've got this character and he's called Jerry Dandridge. Like, I'm thinking, oh, is he like Jerry out of um, The Good Life? Or, <laughs> <laughs> or, he's, or he's some bloke who works in a car dealership. Also, like, how often do vampires have first names and surnames in that way I don't, that you remember? I don't know. Not many. Oh, m- mainly the people, the characters on True Blood. And that's not really a, a great show, is it? <laughs> No, right. So, like, and I know I'm jumping jumping about a bit, and I know mm. we're going to be talking about obviously near dark a bit later. But like, they're you know their sexy vampire is called Severin. Yeah. Like, yeah, this one's Jerry Dandridge. <laughs> <laughs> I instantly think I would if if you put that script in front of me, I would have thought, well, this is like Office Space, right? <laughs> Not you know, sexy, clean cut, like wavy, dark, brooding Chris Sarandon coming onto the scene. Oh, dearie me. Yes, quite. And even, um, so one of the things watching it that made me laugh so much is, um, so the nightclub scene. Mm. Oh my God, that made you laugh? I tell you what made me laugh. <laughs> it was his jumper. It was like, that is, <laughs> yes. the, that is the most 80s thing. Like, do you remember? I mean, obviously neither of us do is a bit young, but like an era existed where men would wear a jumper with nothing underneath it to go nightclubbing, and that was sexy. Oh yes, I'm still haunted by the image of the V-cut sweater that Michael Douglas wears in Basic Instinct in the club scene. Literally, that's exactly what I wrote down. (laughs) The time that Michael Douglas went to a nightclub wearing a Pringle. (laughs) (laughs) But listen, to be honest, I think Chris Sarandon kind of pulls it off because it's also a a kind of a, a platinum silver sweater. Oh yeah. Over some sacks. His whole fashion, the the wardrobe that they make him wear, when I was talking about blending in and kind of hiding in plain sight, he is fully a man of the 80s. He looks like he's just come off of, I don't know, advertising or an aerobics video or something like that. He just looks <laughs> like he belongs in that decade. He does, but he wins it. He pulls it off. You're like, mm. it's still sexy. Yeah. So what do you make of Jerry as a vampire? Because he's got so many things going on. And maybe it's because we were rewatching it as adults, but I found mm. him such an interesting take on the vampire lore. Yeah, he was really interesting. Um, and I think, I don't know whether I was slightly caught up in his sexiness to think about his backstory, because I didn't really think about his backstory, actually. But it is very much about, um, well, so in this day and age, uh, he's he's definitely he's definitely bisexual isn't he he's he's a, he's a sexual being and like uh, oh 100% although he goes for the ladies in this and it's sex workers you're pretty it's pretty clear that like he's not going to be restricted like that so he's like um i mean yeah he's kind of like the prototype well, maybe not the prototype but like a, a certainly a, a fine example of 
of what we come to understand as the sexy vampire, of somebody who wants and feeds and takes and is just like mm. this incredibly sort of powerful alpha male who doesn't really care mm. about anything. Um, yeah, although the, the transformation scenes of his I thought were quite interesting when you finally see him mm. be his true vampire self, which is much grosser. It's very gross. I love the fact that he sort of approaches each, uh, when he goes after someone, all every single time, even when he goes after Evil Ed or an Amy specifically, he approaches it like a seduction. Yes, yes. And it's almost like he asks for a level of complicity. Yes. Like with Ed particularly, when he's sort of like reaching out and Ed has to take his hand. Mm. And Amy, of yeah. course, is under, I don't know if she's under a glamour or if she just really fancies him. But there's some, you know, she's absolutely seduced by him. Yeah, and I think he sort of taps into those deeper fears or desires that those characters have like evil ed wants to be not powerless he wants to not be afraid he wants to have some sort of power um at least to defend himself and to not be you know cowering in a in a corner afraid of everything around him like he like jerry finds him and amy is on that cusp of sexuality but she she's not really getting that with charlie or she's not ready for it although you know it is extremely problematic that she is a literal teenager and this is not just a, an immortal being but also a fully grown man who is making a teenage girl grope him in the middle of a nightclub yeah i mean yes that is sort of slightly uh iffy he also um like he's so alpha because also this the yeah. scene where he goes around to um he's, he meets charlie's mom and she's invited him around mm. and he's teasing charlie he's saying oh i will come around at any time that i want to and it's like, mm -hmm. what's your mum got to say about that? Like, I, I'd be like, what? No, I just invited you around for one drink. I didn't say you could like literally drop around any time you wanted to. But she doesn't say anything about it because mm -hmm. he has this incredible thrall over over everyone. And yeah, you're right. I mean, um, we can talk about Evil Ed maybe a bit more in, in a moment. But like, mm. that character is very sympathetic. He's very annoying. Yeah. But he's really sympathetic, I think absolutely before i move on to him like one of the things that i really liked and they kind of hint at it in the film is the is the backstory of you know someone he was in love mm. with at some time at some point looking like amy but i think there's a real narcissism to jerry which i really like the fact that he you like he knows the way that people look at him and he uses that and wants people to come to him yeah I think you're right. I think that backstory slightly nods towards, actually, you know, the Bram Stoker's Dracula. You know, that that has mm -hmm. a similar thing going, doesn't it? That you know, when he meets Mina, she reminds me of a reminds him of a past love. Yes. But I, but I think you're right. It doesn't. This isn't emphasised as much, and I I sort of almost feel like he wants her because he wants her. Like mm -hmm. it doesn't even necessarily have to be that. Picking up on something that you kind of alluded to before, it's the. It's the queering of this character in the film. Mm. And again, I don't think I necessarily picked it up when I first watched it. But then when I was reading up on it before we, we recorded, I think it's a, it's very deliberate nods that the director, Tom Holland, put in the film. And did you pick up on those, the the homoerotic positioning of some of the, of some of the characters? Perhaps, I mean... Especially... With Jerry and his um his human helper, yeah, and with Jerry and Evil Ed, yeah, ab absolutely. So yeah, so it, it's like the relationship he has with his yeah his human 
I don't know. I don't know what to call him really, but yeah, From, familiar. Yeah, I guess yeah, maybe. yeah. He's, a, he's again unclear, and he's sort of clearly somewhat in awe of of Jerry. And yeah, I mean mm. Ed. So what we learn about Ed is that he he is still really childish, but also mm. he's told constantly that he doesn't fit in, and he is annoying. I mean, he's really annoying. Mm. But you know, <laughs> but you could see why he would look at Jerry and think, "God, I wish I could." be like that I wish I could have that I wish mm-hmm. you know when he's when Jerry's reaching out his hand to him you know and he takes him on into in, into his under his coat basically that there's something very mm-hmm. kind of sensual about that yeah so so let's talk a little bit more about evil Ed because he is he's very sympathetic like I say I'd even say that he's more sympathetic than Charlie yeah I would I would agree again on a second watching like because he's like because you know people like that. He's like the the, mm. the kid at school who didn't really grow up as much. And so he always has mm. to shout louder and be like weird. He's probably the kind of kid who would like dip crisps in a puddle and eat them. To th- <laughs> do, 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 do you know what I mean? Like when you're at school, there was always one kid who was like, oh, I'll dip my crisp in a puddle and eat it. Like, yeah, all right. But, you know, you think that's going to help you make friends, but it's sort of not, is it? Um, yeah. He's sort of that kid, and actually, he gets really quite a harsh. He gets like, bear in mind, he is a, a teenager, like he's a child essentially. Like, he gets treated really badly in this film. He gets a real harsh punishment. Like, so the bit where he's burned by the cross, he mm. cries, and it's just yeah. like, oh god, this is so sort of terrible. I was gonna I was gonna ask actually, like, what do you think of Evil Ed once he is transformed into a vampire and he's actually given some power? Well, this is the thing. So he's transformed, but he doesn't like he weirdly for me, he was the scariest one in it. So that sequence where uh mm. he's wearing that red sort of wig. I don't know. Yeah. Like that's a really frightening image. And it's not the image that is on all the marketing material. That's of Amy later. But him wearing that, I was like, whoa, that's really quite frightening. Um, so he's so while he's given power, he's not he doesn't become sexy and beautiful. Mm. He becomes scraggly and sort of vicious and yeah, and then like later transforms into this wolf creature, you know. Mm. So he I don't know, he gets the power, but I don't know. I, I I wonder whether it's really what he wanted. I think I think he he doesn't really get. It's that. like it's like he gets the bum end of a of a bad deal. Mm. Like he's been, you know, he sees the image of the vampire, which is mm. Jerry, you know, who's a fully grown man who is seductive and um, and a pure alpha male, and then he thinks that he will become that if he becomes a vampire. But he's just a slightly more powerful version of himself. He's not really going to change. And that kind of makes it sad because it's essentially a trick child who's made a mistake that he can never recover from. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely true. And that's actually a really, really sad reading. But you're absolutely right. And yeah, then he's sort of mutilated and then killed, essentially. Uh, and all he really wanted, to, you know. So yeah, Jerry is obviously beautiful and wealthy and powerful and has all these things. And yeah, you're right, Ed. Ed, who we don't really understand why he's called Evil Ed, but he doesn't like it, does he? Like always no. called that, always saying he doesn't like it from the beginning, and yet always, even even when he's potentially immortal, isn't immortal, mm. and is still an outsider, even within that that world. No, he's so sad. What do you think of between Ed and Charlie? 
and um, Peter Vincent, if we have to talk about, mm. we kind of get a slightly satirical take on the horror fan. So what do you think kind of Fright Night, how do you think Fright Night presents horror fandom? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting one. I think it sort of presents it as something um, a bit old fashioned, actually. So yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. almost like it's, I think it's sort of talking about a golden age of horror, um, which was yeah, like almost like your universal monsters and all that sort of thing, mm. where you would, you you can imagine the fandom being heavily um, younger men who are like mm. watching it in their bedroom and becoming really obsessed with all these different things. And yet, Peter Vincent mentions quite early that that you know he's been cancelled because there aren't there just aren't enough fans and sort of tastes have changed. And you sort of mm. get that sense of something that's a bit old fashioned and a bit. Um, a bit nerdy I guess and I mean Ed's certainly a nerd and Charlie while he doesn't want to be a nerd is sort of fighting fighting himself about that because he wants to be I've got a girlfriend and I want to have sex with her and I'm grown up Mm. but still his heart is being pulled back to this part of him you know this this fandom Uh, Mm. but I also think that I don't think it's damning on horror fans though no I think if um I don't I don't think it's damning either if anything it's kind of lovingly poking fun at it but um what do you make of peter vincent who is both an homage i guess to vincent price and maybe a little bit of peter cushing Mm. as van helsing but also to this this period of horror hosts that kind of existed during well for decades in america and there was kind of nationwide and very local horror hosts who became um, conduits into horror films for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. So it's um, I, so growing up in Britain and being the age I am, I didn't really grow up with horror hosts. That wasn't really something that I entirely understood. But mm-hmm. uh, but that doesn't mean that you don't understand it within the context of the film, because of course Peter is presented mm-hmm. so well. So you understand that he is fictionally this incredible, brave vampire hunter, and everybody loves him. And but really, he's like this slightly campy, washed-up actor who probably is only doing that job because they pay him and like you know he didn't mm-hmm. he didn't get the big role that he wanted um so i think it's very affectionate and very loving um yeah i think that that's a, a really nice thing and i think yeah it, perhaps i might i as a british person may have missed some of the nuance of the whole tradition of of horror hosts because it's just not something that comes across over here but i think that the concept of of taking that that character and introducing them to a real world vampire, um, a real world vampire, um, and mm. then them being just completely useless and terrified. It's obviously a really cute device. <laughs> yeah, and I read that um, Tom Holland referred to uh, referred to Peter Vincent as the heart of the movie. Mm. And what do you make of him as a not just kind of as a, as an as a fictional icon of of horror fandom, but um, as a character, you know, as a person that they get to know and who tries earnestly to help them yeah so that's a that's a really interesting point that he's the heart of the movie because in a way he has an arc doesn't he he has quite a clear arc Mm. of being someone who's a bit disconnected and a bit careless and like and is and has to be paid so it's really quite washed up to being someone Mm. who actually has to be heroic in the end and you very much warm to him like you know he puts himself in danger for these new friends i guess Mm. um and it's almost like a yeah, it's a redemptive arc, I guess, for like a selfish, washed-up actor to become a real life, a real life hero. And of course, the, the sort of 
you know, in the in the final scenes after after the threat has gone, you know, him giving Charlie a little nod on his show is like mm. super cute. <laughs> yes. And what do you make of the of the horrific elements of it? Uh like all of the all of the special effects, the face melting, mm. the transformations. Yeah, I was trying to look and see whether it was um somebody super famous who who'd done all that and um it it wasn't uh-huh. a, it wasn't a name that I particularly recognized who was the special effects person. Um but yeah, there was quite a lot of that going on. And I thought it was uh well, it's very difficult not to look a little bit dated. It is very mm. difficult, but that doesn't mean it's not really mm. effective. And it is like, yeah, pleasingly um, sort of visceral and sort of disgusting, <laughs> you know, but in a, in a, in a good way. Um, and of course, yeah, the Amy transformation is the one that everybody remembers because mm-hmm. because it's so, um, it, it's just really iconic, that, that kind of multiple rows of, of teeth. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's almost like, I don't know, I wonder, to me, I think Ed's was the most weirdly the most horrific transformation that was the one where i was like his transformation or his or when he he um is staked well both actually when he's staked is particularly horrible as well Um, yeah yeah but but i think his you know because his you know they've all got like teeth hanging out of their faces um but she's still really beautiful and sexy and suddenly her hair's really long for no reason and (laughs) and and jerry is a bit gross but um but ed's really gross because his teeth are all like all over the shop yeah he's his teeth get worse when he becomes a vampire, which I thought was particularly cruel. I was like, oh, guys, come yeah, on. Exactly. Like, you're supposed to get sexier, not get worse dentures. Yeah, exactly. He's like a deeply unsexy vampire, not given anything. He's just like oh. a really gross looking teeth all over the shop chap. Yeah, I love the... I mean, we're going to touch on this in Near Dark mm. as well, but I love just how very quickly and savagely the switch happens between the sexy vampire, which is the, the thing that we're quite used to seeing, mm to a very horrific, very gross monster version of the vampire and all the meltiness. And, you know, even when Jerry transforms into a bat, it's not like a, it's not a cute bat. It's It's a a disgusting, like floating slug of a bat. Yeah, it's a gross bat with all like, like a a bald, slimy. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. he's a gross bat. That's true. And um, so the film was a, massive success in the mm. 80s the 80s vampire films that we're talking about kind of one of them we talked about was the hunger and we're going to be talking about the lost boys mm. as well which also was massively influential um how do you see that fright night had an influence on on other vampire films subsequently i think um i think the thing with fright night is that it hit a sweet spot didn't it like so yeah mm. i mean the 80s was a massive resurgent in resurgent uh, time in the, the vampire genre but i think one of the mm. things that fright night d- does well um and lost boys does exceptionally well is it's really fun um so it's gross mm. and it's loving and it scratches an itch and it's kind of sexy and it's kind of cool it's got teenage characters so it can appeal to that kind of age group um mm-hmm. in a really good way um but it's it, but it has enough, as you say, viscera and chills that it mm. doesn't. It's not a joke. It does feel like a proper vampire movie. But it was also, it's a very, as you say, very very eighties vampire movie that really embraces mm. its eightiesness. So rather than you know um, a lot of this sort of stuff that came before, which was period, mm-hmm. it sort of eschews that, modernizes it, polishes it, makes it like um, extremely accessible. Um, and and sets it in a modern world. So, you know, 
and with these dark elements of of um i guess modern critique i mean like you know that you know i know that you know we mentioned the serial killer stuff and that was obviously mm. um that obviously strikes me now but like there was a lot of that going on in the 80s too so i think that, that you know it's quite a quite a sharp even mm. though on face value it doesn't look like a sharp film but it is quite a sharp film it's also it is also a really good idea the whole mm -hmm. you know rear window but vampires is <laughs> you know yes yeah rear window but X, Y, and Z always works. Yeah. It's a good formula. Yeah. Rear window on wheels. Road games. Right. Rear window with teenagers. Disturbia. Yeah, exactly. And also Fright Night. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, and it's and the suburbanness of it as well, um, mm. I think is quite... Uh, it, I mean, you've touched on it already, but that the concept of hiding in plain sight, the, the concept of this is in suburbia. So, like, we'd already had Halloween, obviously, and that, and mm -hmm. the idea of Halloween being just because you've got a white picket fence and everything's cute and nice means you're safe. It, you know, it does not mean that. It does not mean that at all. And just because Charlie is, you know, worrying about his girlfriend and homework and watching his horror films does not mm -hmm. mean that he's not safe. It, it does not mean that he is safe from this mm. otherworldly threat this man who can move in literally next door, convince everybody that he's a good guy and yet mm -hmm. come in his window and kill him anytime he wants to. Yes, it's that kind of um, the darkness hiding underneath the white picket fence appearance. Mm. And, you know, we're recording this on the day of David Lynch's birthday, which mm -hmm. is a very Lynchian theme as well, the kind of exploring the 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 dark undertones or the secrets that are dwelling in, in the most placid of environments, um, which again... It's kind of, it reminded me a lot of the Goonies in the mm. sense, because it's very teenage friendly, it's fun, it's sort of bubbly, exactly like you say. And then when you, but it's got some very dark themes in it and it explores them in a way that kind of, even, even within the film language, even within the text, it's kind of hiding in plain sight because I would not have been able to pick up a lot of the, the darker themes in it when I was a teenager. And that they really stood out to me when I rewatched mm. it as an adult. Yeah, and you know we've talked a lot about that about Jerry and stuff. Yeah, and you can see shades of like I'm not I'm not suggesting it's necessarily an influence, but the, the sort of our current mm. um, like Stranger Things, for example, the idea of like mm. um, groups of kids uh, who aren't being believed battling supernatural threats. You know, you see mm -hmm. it in um, you know the, the more the recent versions of it or indeed the 1990s version of 1990 version of it has the same mm -hmm. thing this idea of like outsider kids having to sort of stand up and be brave and of course um lost boys is like has lots and lots of similar things going on before we move on this film had a couple of sequels which i'll admit i haven't seen um and also got a remake in 2011 uh, with Colin Farrell playing the Jerry character. Did you watch the remake? Yeah, I did. Uh, and I quite liked it, actually. I didn't... Yeah, because I, I think Colin Farrell... I think Colin Farrell is really good when he's mm. when he's given the right role. I think he's a really good actor. Uh, yeah. And I think he really pulled this off well. Mm -hmm. I think that... Um, so it's obviously David Tennant who was playing the Peter Vincent character and he was playing it more mm. like um, like a Chris Angel style... Mm -hmm. you know like a an illusionist yeah, kind of yeah, yeah and i don't know i don't i don't think he was as sympathetic as the originals peter vincent he still has the same arc he still has to man up mm -hmm. and become you know better uh but i don't know there's something about um roddy mcdowell there's a sweetness there that 
I think you're right, because also I think that horror hosts had a very beloved and important place mm. in in pop culture and in horror history and in the way people saw them. Whether it felt like David Tennant's version of like nobody liked Illusionist. <laughs> I'm sorry. Nobody that was a that was a phase in pop culture which I'm still kind of amazed about. Everybody kind of had collective amnesia or collective bad taste and realized like, wait, what? We're giving these these people are a thing now? In the sense that like they weren't, um, I think <laughs> that sounds really mean, mm. but I don't think they were necessarily as um as beloved a cultural figure. So it kind of even the the mockery of David Tennant's version of it always felt a little bit mean spirited. Yeah, so so weirdly it's it's yes, you're absolutely right about that. Because it's the other way around. So illusionists always came across as like making loads of money, being incredibly arrogant and nobody really likes them. Whereas horror hosts are like really probably not making very much money, are probably kind of washed up actors and everybody feels sort of mm. a level of affection because it's not like they're like these arrogant, awful people living in massive mansions. They're like, you know, kind of sweet old bloke who's trying to scratch together a living in a in a sort of a, a, a sub-genre that's actually a little bit old-fashioned and kind of dying on its ass. Unlike, unlike illusionist so there's yeah i think that element it didn't quite work for me so well i did like it though and i thought the 3d was pretty good on it as well before we move into near dark is there anything about fright night that we haven't covered that you wanted to talk about there is actually which we've touched on and it is the scene in the nightclub go on well so that whole dance sequence yes. is quite it's it's basically it's it's it's, it's quite explicit for people with it's a sex it's a sex scene. scene it's a simulated sex yeah. scene so at one point she basically goes down on him and it is like yeah in the middle of a nightclub it's a very strange extended sequence that one it literally he literally takes her hand and puts it on his ass yeah yeah and then you see him having a grab of her ass and then there's some kissing of necks going on and he's sort of pushing it uh, yeah it, uh, that struck me as a, a quite a risque scene extremely risque and also because there's this like back and forth between them where they don't they never they don't kiss until the very mm. end but there's also a part where he goes in almost to bite her and then she pushes him away and they have a sort of like an exchange of looks like it's a very wordless very sexy but also very aggressive sex scene in the middle of a of a dance floor right and she's also and it's sort of like She's not helpless in that scene. She's sort of seducing him as well, which is why it was quite an interesting mm. thing. So yes, okay, she's under his influence. But yeah, she does. She pushes him away. She snaps her, her neck back at times when she wants things to mm -hmm. be different. And then, of course, when we see that she's dancing in the mirror with no one, it mm -hmm. all, all adds to the strangeness. It, um, I don't know, it reminded me very slightly of a, an incredibly sort of 80s nightclub version of like some bits of Labyrinth, which are also like impossibly sexy um but in a far more romantic and child child friendly way uh, but yeah i thought that was a, a a good scene an interesting scene and i thought it was a really interesting thing and really struck me because it felt extremely adult mm. um whether it's like there was hints of adulthood before and like jerry is obviously you know we've talked about his influence and how he m moves in that world but that was very that was a full-on scene without that was a full-on sex scene without showing a little bit of sex mm. Mm. so much so <laughs> i'm very glad you brought that up we had not discussed it i was enough. gonna say i just I, could, I couldn't let it go i couldn't let it go no absolutely not also anything that involves like dancing in film 
Yes. I need I need at least 30 minutes to discuss it. <laughs> um, so let's move on now to vastly different type of 1980s vampire film. Mm. Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark from 1987. Before we dig into the film itself, are you a fan of Catherine Bigelow's films? Uh, I'm a fan of lots of her films. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't love Detroit, but mm -hmm. obviously that wasn't that long ago. But um, I love Near Dark. Um, I love Bruce Steele. Uh, Hurt Locker was great. Um, yeah, and I think, and this was her debut, and I yes. think it is a very distinctive movie, very, very kind of um, accomplished and, and mm. um, has such a clear style to it. So, where do you think Near Dark, aside from being her debut, um, stands within her career? Like, do you notice rewatching now after seeing a lot of the work that she's done over the over the last thirty years? Um, do you see similarities or themes that her, that seem recurrent now? Um, I think well, it's, I think it's very clear early on that she has um, a really good eye for action. There's a lot of action in this movie, um, mm. and it is a it's a very stylish film. Um, and there's quite a lot of stunt work. It's very grown up. It's a film that is definitely a genre film, but also somewhat transcends that. Mm -hmm. um, I think if it was, I think it absolutely stands up to the test of time as well. So I think if it was made now, people would be like, Oof, "That's that's quite the debut." I mean, also, also, you know, it's an ensemble cast, which she worked with in things like Hurt Locker. Well, it's also just a very confident debut, isn't it? I was reading something that saying that you know she was told that if she wasn't, if she didn't know what she was doing, she'd be booted off after five days or something like that, mm -hmm. which was incredibly unfair, quite frankly. But there you go. Yeah. Um, but that isn't the case. This film is strange because it's 
it kind of mixes the Western and the vampire genres. What do you make of the way that it kind of combines both of those? Yeah, Western and vampire and also sort of um, biker movie tropes as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So it has this kind of big landscapes and the sort of grittiness and slightly dirtiness of uh of the western um and the sort of and the, and the sort of wild westness of it so the dangerousness of it mm-hmm. um but then with these with these vampires um who like the, they are vampires obviously mm. but they're kind of um a bunch of nomadic killers really yeah so they, they wouldn't have to be vampires they are yeah. and that's a story but mm-hmm. there are yeah th- these kind of traveling also misfits but in but unlike um let's say lost boys mm-hmm. not romanticized at all no. and so all the scarier for it i would argue mm. so what do you make of the way that vampires are presented in this yeah so these are like these vampires are um are outlaws and they are a constructed family mm-hmm. and they are ruthless and um think nothing of violence uh we understand that jesse hooker so uh, lance hamrickson's character mm-hmm was probably in the confederate army mm-hmm. um these are not these are not nice people these mm-hmm. are like these are people that you should be frightened of like a, a gang of outlaws essentially like touring the country in a camper van who are so sort of removed from their own humanity mm-hmm. that like they're they're a terrifying gang and i mean you know bigelow makes it makes quite a point of not going into vampire law with mm-hmm. these guys so we know that they burn up in the sunlight and that's obviously a very key part um and we know that it is possible to kill them and the, and also that they have like super strength and you know can withstand being shot and things like that but like all the other bits of slightly campier mm-hmm. vampire mythology just doesn't come up in this like you know the whole crosses and garlic and all that mm-hmm. nonsense yeah there is no um there's absolutely no romanticizing of them these are not sexy vampires they're they're very gritty they're very dirty they Mm. feel like they're kind of designed as if they do scar and i think jesse Mm. um does have a kind of a big scar over his face which which kind of makes them stand out in a sense because they're not um they're not beautiful and polished they're they're scary like if they if they walked into a bar yeah or if you cross them on the street i'd be fucking terrified um and the the kind of the misfit elements of them. So the fact that they're it's two men and these two women and this little kid who looks like a smaller version of Judd Nelson's Bender character from mm. The Breakfast Club. The the violence in this film I found very kind of grounded. So mm. it feels it doesn't feel like bloodlust or um like a seduction like in Fright Night. It feels extremely violent in a very realistic way. Yeah. And it doesn't even feel like they kill just to eat. It feels like they do it because they want to and because they like it. And they kind of mm. are, are so like distanced from themselves that they kind of are what they once were perhaps. Mm. Um, although, of course, we don't know what they once were, but that they they kill for pleasure and have no qualms about it at all. Mm. And, uh, and, and particularly with Severin, uh, he is he enjoys intimidating and terrifying people mm. as yeah. much as he enjoys killing them so the violence is like it's much more frightening it, it's yeah you're absolutely right that like you know so the bar scene mm-hmm. which is oh god this, yeah yeah 
this centerpiece bar scene with the whole group of them and you you know that this is going to be a massacre mm -hmm. and 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 what you're doing is watching severin play with his food as it mm -hmm. were like like batting about a, a mouse or whatever so he's he's intimidating everyone and it's it's kind of, it's so tense and it's so horrible that you know if you're in that bar you would just want to get the hell out immediately mm -hmm. like these are the worst kind of people to be around. It sort of reminded, you know, it reminds me of sort of these villains like Begbie later on from Trainspotting, like yes. just so volatile. Yes, volatile and also just not really caring about being caught. Mm. Like that that scene in the bar, I was really taken aback by how the uh, the rest of the people in the bar just didn't bat an eye mm. when they when they stone cold killed the waitress. <laughs> yeah, and kind of you know, like poured her blood into a pint glass and they just looked on, kind of resigned to it. And the it's extremely they're extremely sadistic. Mm. Yeah, I think that bar scene is it was particularly effective. And I think mm. that there are things there are undercurrents that are that's talking about masculinity, a particular kind of masculinity in that mm. sequence. So almost so yeah, it's 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 sadistic and terrifying. But the build up to it, for me, was almost as uncomfortable. So there's a bit where he um, spills a guy's drink, then then has a bit of an altercation and you can tell that Severin's just absolutely terrifying, then mm -hmm. orders him a drink and then says, now you pay for it. Yeah. And it's just like, you've, you've massive, this, this, the guy in the bar is not going to, he's not going to be a pushover. You've completely challenged his masculinity. What's he going to do about it? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's frightening. It's, and you, you have those feelings of, you know, I've been in bars, not not like that, but mm. I've been in moments in bars where it's men and it's like, this is horrible. Mm. Like something bad is going to happen here. Like when you have, you know, and of course that, you know, the barfly guy does not know that Severin's a, 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 virtually a immortal, immortal vampire, but it's mm. just that tension of like, when do you fight back and when don't you? When mm. when your masculinity is called called into question what do you do? And it's like, nothing good is going to happen from this point on. That's an interesting point to bring in the protagonist of the film, really, Caleb. What mm. do you make of him and how he clashes or fits in or doesn't quite fit in with, with the near dark, um, I'm going to call them vampire gang? Yeah. So he initially is, he's quite alpha. He's, mm. a, he's a bit of a cheeky chappy. <laughs> <laughs> like that's not really quite the right word but you know, like you know at the makes start, sense yeah yeah he's sort of chatting up may and and pushing his luck and she's getting frightened and he's like well i'll you know i might drive you back but you've got to give me a kiss first and again being a bit of a sex pest but he's like nice looking guy and you know he's quite cool um and you know he's kind of looking for uh looking for some adventure and looking for some excitement mm. but then finds himself in this situation where it's really too much but i think like um you know, I'm sure that there's reams and reams that have been written about this, but the kind of the whole the sort of drug addict mm -hmm. element to it, the the drug addict undertone, where he sort of wants a bit of excitement, but it gets too much, and so they are the the vampire family, the the vampire gang, are very um, mistrustful of him because he won't kill, mm -hmm. and yet I think for us as an audience, it's important that he maintains that. Mm -hmm. It's important for us to. As, as an audience to still um, believe that Caleb 
has his essential humanity. We need to believe mm. that he has not become so corrupted that we can't see him go back to his family, that we mm. need to see him punished. So if we'd seen him kill a load of people, mm-hmm. it would be like, well, I don't know if I want him redeemed, but mm. it's really crucial that he's not. But but in but in not killing, he um, jeopardizes like his relationship with the, with the vampire mm. gang, basically. He's not one of them. Or well, not until later, anyway. Mm. And... What do you think of his relationship with May, really? Because the film pretty much starts when they meet. So I think she's a really interesting character. And like that actress, Jenny Wright, mm. the only other thing that I'd really remembered seeing her in was um, Pink Floyd's The Wall. Yeah. And she's really good in that as well. Mm. And there's a similar sort of reckless, um, reckless kind of intoxicated beauty about her. And she's like super sexy, basically. And so he, you know, so he, Caleb wants her and wants to sort of possess her and own her and doesn't understand how dangerous she is because she just doesn't look dangerous at all. But actually, it's her that is more dangerous and it's her that takes care of of him. So in a a way, it's a a romance. I, I don't know how strongly I rooted for that romance. Mm. But I think you're supposed to. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you're bringing it up because I wasn't at all. Mm-hmm. I I don't know if you felt this way, but I didn't get enough of a sense of why they were risking so much to be together. Right, because they really don't know each other. You don't ever really see them chat. You've got no idea whether they've got anything in common whatsoever. I mean, they like fancy <laughs> each other because they're both yeah. very hot, but okay. Is yeah, that- that's... <laughs> Also, do we know, do we have any sense of like how old May is, like how long she's been a vampire? Because I wasn't very clear on that. No, and I think it's, no, we only really get like that illusion of how old they are with Jesse and um, Severin because they talk about uh, like the American Civil War and stuff like that. And Mm. I didn't really get how old Homer was, but May seems to be, I guess, contemporary, like quite contemporary. Yeah, I think I think she'd have to be, mm. but it, but I think I, I maybe would have wanted a bit more of an understanding of that because if so, this is the other thing. Mm. Um, the ending, I don't know how you felt about it, but I I'm not sold on the ending. I, I really do love mm. the film. I don't want to be super negative, but the mm. ending is a bit of a strange leaves a bit of a strange taste in the mouth. I found. Well, I was going to ask you, um, you know, let's let's just put it out there now. Kind of, what do you make of the 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 twist of vampirism being able to be kind of revoked i guess yeah so while if we're taking it as like a drug metaphor mm-hmm. then it's a two thumbs good you know yes you absolutely kind of <laughs> yeah people should be allowed redemption um and coming off drugs and being all right again is really good and important however within vampire mythology it doesn't work for me at all mm. because if it's like well, okay so what uh, can that happen to Jesse then? Mm-hmm. So he gets to live for however many hundreds of years and then just be human again. Mm. That takes away the, a strong element of like vampire law for me mm. is it's like, yay, you get to be immortal, but also boo, you have to be immortal. Like with what price is that? You know, what do you lose with this immortality? But if it, if you can just turn it back without so much as a buy you leave Hmm. then it's like well everyone should be a vampire for a bit until you're tired of it and then don't be a vampire anymore you know it's i think to you know i think Mm -hmm. if it was going to be like okay he can be reversed because he's never killed let's Mm -hmm. say 
you know, I can. I think there's some other shows. Oh, is that in fact isn't that isn't that what um, happens in the Lost Boys? Uh, like like that would make sense, but she has killed, mm-hmm. and we have no concept of how often, but often. Um, so then it's like, well, I don't know. That that sort of takes something away from the the law of it, and my, and sort of almost the the terrifyingness of it. If they, if any of them could just go back to being human at any point. Yeah, because it it also I love the your reading of it as a as a drug metaphor because that if that if that's kind of the intention then it makes perfect mm. sense it's a it's a nice cycle and a nice arc but you were mentioning before that we don't really get a sense of how long may has been a vampire we don't really get a sense of why um adrian passed ours caleb's dad's blood fixes him and then mm. why does his blood fix may shouldn't she then i don't know dissolve into dust of say she's been alive for more than a hundred years or you know what are the conditions of that does it apply to all other vampires yeah and even if she's only been alive for let's say 20 years then Mm. would she not like age really suddenly or not or is it it was vampirism because then if it is the drug metaphor it's like yeah take drugs because it's a really really good anti-aging thing and when you're done (laughs) uh have a blood transfusion so that's not what we're not the moral of this story and the other thing again kind of tying into something that you you mentioned before it's like it kind of undoes the idea that if may and caleb are sort of a gentler kind of vampire Mm. who do not get off on violence and do not get off on torturing people they could have just like gone on by themselves on their merry way and could have been better vampires and not be sadistic creatures like severin and jesse but they just go back to being human. And they also go back to this quite, um, perhaps this is an overreading. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe this has been out there in some of the um, think pieces and opinion pieces that have been written about this film. But I kind of read it as, you mentioned it before, that this is a, a constructed family of misfits, right? Of people who don't necessarily fit in. Mm. And there's nothing really sexual implied going on between them. They're not kind of coupled up. There's no, there's a family dynamic. But I think the idea of a of a chosen family is quite rooted in queer culture. Mm. And the idea that Caleb and May kill or, you know, separate themselves from that chosen family, which is at least a chosen family for May. Mm. And then they go back to this like very cookie cutter, correct house, dinner at eight, polite existence feels a little bit as well like a betrayal of the um, all the transgressions and the the uh, and the allowances and the and the pleasure seeking and the kind of the 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 alternative lifestyle that the vampire embodies and it almost feels like a step back yeah and i mean for her so we don't because you don't get any backstory for her sorry excuse me um we don't understand why they have decided to turn her Mm. rather than kill her because they, they're killing all sorts of people left, right, and centre. And if we're to understand that she's the youngest of that, or the the newest of that group, which mm-hmm. may well be the case, then it's sort of like, well, you know, how long have you been with them, and do you not have any feelings for these people? Mm. In it, if this is your chosen family, and they've all just been horribly killed, like, I don't know, mm. it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? And also because they are all killed by the end, it's sort of, it, it's a bit of a a slightly anticlimactic ending, like you say, mm-hmm. in in that you're like, well, what's next for you then, Caleb and May? Because like, she's killed a bunch of people, 
presumably doesn't have any friends or family of her own and now you're with you know with Caleb's family and now what are you going to do like be a ranch hand or something <laughs> like have all these things that you've done yeah. and, and seen and lived like uh like settling although, yes yeah although to be fair you mentioned that may you you mentioned that you found may a very interesting character um what do you think i'm i'm not i'm i'm personally not sure where i stand on her because Catherine Bigelow is an interesting one where I think her male characters are always much more fleshed out than her female characters. And that's yeah. not necessarily a criticism. Um, what do you think of May in this in this dynamic? Because it's just really her and Jeanette Goldstein's character, whose name I completely forget, um, and Caleb's little sister, Sarah. They're really the only women in this film who, who have kind of speaking roles. And May is the main one. Yeah, so like Jeanette Goldstein's character, I think she's called Diamondback. Yes. And, like, and, and to me, the reading is that she and Jesse are a couple. Um, I mean, that might just be me reading that, but that she's almost like the matriarch of this family. Mm -hmm. um, and she at least has sort of power and agency, but it's almost like May is the honey trap, essentially. She's the young, oh, pretty girl yeah. so, who can lure in the guys. But you are absolutely right about like about the male characters and like for me although i think jesse's really interesting and like scar yeah that really helps um, it's, it's seven all the way through that film mm. is just it's it's bill paxton and his performance mm. is what makes that movie so electric and what keeps it alive and he's the one you want to watch every second and all of his different kind of movements and mannerisms and his, his costumes like everything about him is just like I mean, he's, I think he's a really, um, I think he's a really iconic character. Is that quite? Well, I don't know if that's quite the right word, but mm. he's he's certainly the standout character. So May, um, yeah, you're right. I mean, she's a bit of a cipher, isn't she? And I think we understand that she has like a nurturing spirit to her. So she obviously tries to take care of, um, she tries to take care of Caleb, mm. but also her impetus for leaving the family is is Sarah, the little sister. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, so in a way, we've kind of got beautiful woman, honey trap, mothering instinct. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think maybe Diamondback is maybe a bit more interesting. She's definitely got a look. Like yes, Jeanette Goldstein is one of those character actresses. I think that just even when she doesn't really have that many lines or that much mm. to do, um, I, I say I, I say this <laughs> even as I totally misremembered her character's name, but I remember her outfit and just her energy. She's every mm. time she's on screen, she completely dominates it without saying anything. Yeah, you wouldn't fuck with her, would you? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> like she would crush me. Yeah, but <laughs> and she's almost like a uh, yeah. So you're, you're you're right. She doesn't need to say that much, and she's almost like a, an example of the type of person. Mm. Or, you know, that type of matriarch within that misfit outlaw family, which actually probably does harken back to the Western roots of it, that mm. she's, you know, she'd be the, I don't know, the brothel madam, or she'd be the <laughs> you know, the matriarch gunslinger who stands mm. up to her husband and, you know, any of the men, is, is, tougher than, is just as tough as all the men in the town mm. and that sort of thing. Yeah, May, I think maybe less well-drawn. And you mentioned that Bill Paxson's character, Severin, who we kind of talked about a little bit earlier, that he's utterly unhinged, um, but is, you know, he's on the poster. Like, he's much more of a, he feels much more of a lead in a way than Caleb does. 
Yes. Because well, Caleb is going along for the ride a lot of it, isn't he? Yeah, like, he's kind of like a hot wet blanket. <laughs> I like a hot wet blanket. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe a hot a hot dry blanket. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, because he, he like he's trying to chat up the girl. She bites him without you know without any sort of without any consent, you know. So he is very much apart from the one sequence where he manages to save the family, the vampire family. I mean, uh, when the police are there and there's a siege situation, uh, he doesn't really do very much, while Severin absolutely does and controls everything and it's just his own man like and even though jesse's the, the patriarch mm. it's it's severin's the one that they they I, I don't think the family are afraid of him but he you do get the sense that he's allowed to do what he wants to do that bar that bar sequence was just so kind of horrible yeah and the rest of them are sat in a booth just sort of waiting around mm. but he's the one who's tormenting everybody and that scene as well where he's trying to kill caleb towards the end mm. like what do you think of him as a how do you even classify him he's like he's not so much of a villain or he's just kind of like an unstoppable killing monster he doesn't really seem to have any even sense of self-preservation because he no. just throws himself at that truck towards the end yeah yeah absolutely so he he's a really interesting character i think like if we're mm -hmm. thinking about the archetypes of vampire, yeah, and like he's, I mean, is he sexy? I don't know. Like, no, but there's something about him that, but he does have a sexuality about him, and it's part this, this sort of animal nature that he doesn't seem to care about mm -hmm. anything, mm -hmm. and um, he of course never trusts. You don't. You get a sense that he never trusted mm -hmm. Caleb and. So, you know, in the, I suppose in the archetype of, of vampireness, he is someone who is so devoid of, of humanity. He's an absolute ferocious, like, as you say, ferocious killing machine mm. that he would as soon, um, yeah, jump on the front of a truck and get blown up as to let something go. He gets himself run over by the truck and he doesn't care. He doesn't yeah. jump out of the way. He's just like, come at me. Like, he's so kind of unstoppable. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's like the absolute... And when we talk about Jerry Dandridge being alpha, like Severin's mm. like the alpharist of alphas and, and Severin tra taps into, which is what I think is very effective of that, mm. about this film, because vampires often on, are not scary, but Severin is scary. And yes. he taps into that complete sort of madness and animal nature um, that Im immortality sort of gives you, or certainly seems to have given Severin this sense that like, if he can't die, then he can just literally do whatever he wants. Mm. And you mentioned something before that I think is very on the money when thinking about this film. And it's kind of how it explores and explodes different approaches to masculinity and like a very Western brand of masculinity. Because Westerns are always like very identified with very alpha, macho men and a lot of it kind of revolving about their masculinity being extremely protected and very almost having very specific rules to it and how do you 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 alluded to it before but how do you think this film taps into both and deconstructs kind of both the masculinity of the vampire and kind of this west american western legacy yeah i think you see that um in both 
um, in both families, don't you, to an extent. So in mm. the constructed family of the vampires, where you have um, these almost fairly set roles and like in, I suppose in like if if the vampire families were in a western model and they were like not the baddies then then uh then diamondback would be like the the tart with a heart kind of mm -hmm. character but also within Caleb's family so like Caleb lives with his dad and his sister and his dad is as masculine as Caleb is and it is his dad that comes after him and comes to save him and you know um so that sort of that sort of um is another like I, I suppose like a kind of another western trope of the you know the good guy hero out to sort of out for justice mm -hmm. fighting the gang of of, of baddies mm -hmm. um and yeah i mean i think it is as you said westerns are and it is quite a masculine film like all the police people or not all of the police people but most of the police people are you know are men as well mm -hmm. um yeah, there's not yeah, there's not a lot of space. There's not a lot of feminine space in this. Mm. And thinking of kind of wrapping up a conversation about both of these films, um, they're very different, and they're only kind of made within a few years of each other. Mm. But where do you think these two very different takes on the vampire, both from the eighties, sit in this in our cultural canon of how we imagine vampires to be? So I think. Um, so it's interesting. Fright Night made a load of money when it came out. Uh, Near Dark did not. And Near Dark came out like not very long after Lost Boys. And a lot of people, like, you, there is a suggestion that part of the reason that it didn't do so well is because Lost Boys was such a massive hit. And they're mm. just very, very tonally different. So while um, Fright Night is something that is a lot of fun, it, it plays with and references like vampire history so it does, you know, it does talk about the old-fashioned vampire, mm. has nods towards the old-fashioned gentleman vampire, but upset, updates it for a really eighties audience. So while I think it's still a film that is is much loved, it is very much an eighties movie mm. that is just such an eighties movie. While I think Near Dark, actually, because it isn't that, sort of transcends that aging. So Near Dark is a much more serious movie, and it's a much more um, well, much more dark movie, in fact. Um, and I think, weirdly, it's 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 possible that Near Dark stands the test of time and is considered more like high art, perhaps, mm. than Fright Night is. Which, and I'm not I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong or whatever, but I think that um, you, I think the analysis of of Near Dark and critical thinking around Near Near Dark mm. is likely to be a bit more uh, highbrow, I suppose, a bit more. Uh, elusive and I think yeah it doesn't I don't think near dark has has aged particularly I think it's it's a pretty mm. timeless pretty timeless movie in a way that Fright Night is is not but mm -hmm. not a, but that's not a you know that doesn't mean it's not great mm -hmm. it's just it's so steeped in the 80s so mm -hmm. yeah I think they're kind of doing doing different things in that sense thank you so much Rosie for your time and for your brilliant insight on these um very different films very sexy in very different ways yes very violent in very different ways <laughs> yeah. where can people find more of your work online um so i'm the uk editor of den of geek so head over to den of geek and you'll find lots of me there um 
Den of Geek is also just about to launch a new quarterly print magazine, which you can subscribe to for free. So if you have an interest, head over to the website. Um, and if you sign up before the 29th of January, then you can get the first issue. Um, and I'm on um, at Rosarella Fletch on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you so much, Rosie. Thank you, Anna. That's it for this episode of the Final Girls podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you can, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And you can find out more about what we do on thefinalgirls.co.uk. Subscribe to our weekly newsletter for newly commissioned essays and other horror treats. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Final Girls UK. You can also follow Rosie at Rosarella Fletch and read her work over at Den of Geek. I can be found on Twitter at Anna B. Demented. Thank you for listening. And next week, we are reaching peak 80s vampires with a deep dive into the Lost Boys.